You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading tonight comes from John 7, 1 through 31. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for your word, and we are glad and joyful now as your people to be assembled under it. Father, we pray that you would do a great work in us. We are yielded and still now. Father, we pray that uh, anything that is not from you and of your word uh, would be kept from my mouth, and if it comes out of my mouth, might be quickly forgotten by your people. We want to be made into your image, into the image of Christ for his glory and for our immense and eternal joy. We pray these things 
In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Can I just say, like, I, I enjoy getting to see a lot of you throughout the week and getting to hang out with individual or smaller groups with you throughout the week. But man, I love Sunday nights. I really, really love getting to be together with all of us together. I, I don't know if you enjoy it as much as I do, but this is, this is the best hour and a half of the week. Um, all right, into John 7. So a common story device, it's often used throughout the centuries. It's an old, old device. It's a, it's a foreigner coming to a new culture. So we've got classics like a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, Back to the Future, like basically any time travel movie. Uh, coming to America, Perfect Strangers, anybody remember Balki Bartokomus? Uh, even to some degree Superman, right? Their character, he doesn't understand the new culture, he doesn't understand the language, the tradition, frustration, often hilarity ensues. Well, even though Jesus is 100% human, he is born of Mary and he is a human, one theme we've been tracing throughout this book of John is that Jesus isn't from here. Chapter 1, the true light's coming into the world. Chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Chapter 5, Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. And then last week we saw in chapter 6 where Jesus says, I am the bread of life, come down from heaven. But as we have seen and will continue to see now tonight in chapter 7, unlike Balki Bartakamus, Jesus isn't just some tourist who gets himself into trouble because he doesn't understand the customs. No, Jesus created the universe. He knows the inner thoughts of every human that he encounters because he created them too. Jesus is actually the humanity, the culture that God has created us to be. And we have like diverted and devolved into what it wasn't meant to be. It's like... It's, the world that Jesus walks into, it's like as if like a hundred Americans like set sail to go inhabit this desert island with a copy of the Constitution and they have decided to create this new culture wrapped around and centered around the Constitution and then like 200 years later, they've just completely devolved and like James Madison shows up on the desert island with, in a time machine and he's like, guys, you've got it all wrong and they're like, who are you? What do you mean? No, we've got it exactly right. And he's like, I wrote the thing. I wrote the Constitution. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand. That desert island's culture might be at odds with James Madison, but it's not his fault. It's their fault. And this is the world that Jesus steps into. So tonight, in this first half of chapter 7, we're going to see that Jesus doesn't act like us. Jesus doesn't teach like us. And all of this because he is not like us. The true culture and humanity that God has created us to be is shown and is revealed through Jesus Christ. But often, just like the Jews of his days, we don't like that. We don't like the true humanity, the true culture that Jesus has come to reveal and called us into. We don't think he knows what he's talking about. So we get mad. All right, let's get right into it. Chapter 7, verse 1. Jesus, he doesn't act like us. I'm going to read these first nine verses again that Astrea read for us. Read through these now with your Bibles open if you didn't have them earlier. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. 
For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to him, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So in chapter 6, we saw the people of Galilee try to force Jesus to become their king. Perhaps the disciples were amongst that crowd. They were pressing in on him, wanting to, him to be this new king of Israel. And they are still, they're still not quite sure why Jesus didn't take them up on this offer. He could have done a lot of good. He could have ended a lot of suffering. He could have restored Israel to their right place amongst the nations. But if he didn't want to become king, his brothers think, at least surely, like any teacher, he'll want to grow his following. So in verse 3, Jesus' brothers, assumingly his younger brothers, sons of Mary and Joseph, like James or possibly Jude, who would each later write New Testament letters, these guys who at the moment don't yet quite believe in Jesus, these guys encourage Jesus to go back down south to Judea, that more people can see the things that he's able to do. We saw that at the end of chapter 6, there have been some large-scale defections. Jesus has been teaching hard things, and people have been leaving. His numbers are bleeding. So the, the, these brothers are thinking, hey, we need, we need some fresh blood in here. We need, some, we need some new recruits, and maybe, preferably, some new recruits that didn't hear you say the weird stuff about, like, eating your flesh and drinking your blood. Maybe if we go back down south, you could not say that again. So look, Jesus, if you're going to be popular, if you're going to become well-known, if you're going to be a, a famous rabbi and teacher with a big following, you need to get back to Jerusalem. Any teacher worth his salt is in Jerusalem teaching near the temple. On top of that, it's the Festival of Booths, or more often called the Festival of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Tabernacles. So Tabernacles, it's a fall festival, September or October on our calendar, which means that all of this is about six months later after Jesus fed the 5,000 in chapter 6. This festival was an ingathering feast, an ingathering festival of the, of the harvest, the fall harvest of the grapes and the olives. It was a week-long feast where people would build temporary shelters out in the fields where they were harvesting these olives and grapes uh, to protect their crops. And these temporary shelters, or booths, uh, they reminded the people of their time in the desert, wandering. They were always mobile. They were wandering in the desert, which we've been reading and thinking a lot about lately as a church, if you've been reading with us in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, of their being completely mobile with mobile shelters or booths or tabernacles. But over the centuries, the Feast of Tabernacles had become the most popular of the three major feasts of it, Passover, and Pentecost. And every fall, thousands and thousands of people would make their way toward Jerusalem, sleeping under these mobile little shelters of sticks and branches. People in Jerusalem would build their booth on top of their house. They would sleep outside for a week under the stars, remembering the wilderness. It was like, it was like a giant NASCAR race all over Judea and Jerusalem. RVs everywhere. People just hanging out and enjoying one another. 
The people refer to this week as the season of our gladness, the annual season of our gladness. The prophet Zechariah, in his chapter 14, he looks forward to this future golden age, which would be a never-ending feast of tabernacles. The people just always just being together, enjoy, hanging out. So naturally, Jesus' brothers are thinking, not only does any rabbi who's worth his salt need to be in Jerusalem, he certainly needs to be in Jerusalem now when everybody's in Jerusalem. You can get popular again, Jesus. We lost some numbers, but it's okay. You can fix this thing. But just like in chapter 5 with the Sabbath and chapter 6 with Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles is, continue, is going to continue to be the framework for the rest of chapter 7 and 8. The feast was most well known for a daily ritual in which a priest would come out and he would draw water from a pool and then pour it out. And then later in the week, the, the priests would light these giant candelabra torches, some accounts saying that are as, like, as large and as tall as the temple itself. So it's not an accident that we'll see over the next few weeks that Jesus is going to emphasize water and light as he teaches at this feast. But for the time being, Jesus tells his brothers that he's not going. Like any of us would want him to, they want him to get down there, start getting popular again, making a name for himself to show, show the world what he can really do. It's like as you, if you've got some new product, the best thing that you can do to make a name for yourself in the market that you're trying to sell to is to go to the national convention of your market in Las Vegas or wherever it is, right? You've got to start pushing your product, get your name out there, make a name for yourself and just let the, let the market know that you're there. But of course, as careful readers of John's gospel, we can see the irony of his brothers urging Jesus to get down there to show the world what he can do in verse 4. They say, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. If you're able to do all of these awesome things, show these things to the world. We've already seen that Jesus' signs and miracles won't in and of themselves produce saving faith, but the world in John's gospel is fundamentally at odds with Jesus. Like we know from John 1 and 3, there's a sense in which no one can receive Jesus. No one can see Jesus for who he is unless that person first ceases to be of the world. If and when he reveals himself to the world, the world will reject him. The world hates Jesus, not only because he's not from it, but verse 7, because he testifies against it. He's preaching against the world, that what it is and does is evil. Naturally, and to ourselves, we're like the old Mrs. Havisham in Great Expectations. Remember her from junior English? She's always drawing the curtains. She's always pained and hurt by the light, dreaded by the thought of our exposure to the light, pained by the idea that we'll be found out, that what someone will see our darkness for what it actually is, or in an even hardened way, in a more hardened way, thinking about, uh, thinking about that what is actually darkness in our lives is actually light, that we become to think that what is Dark is actually light, and we don't want more light to show that what this light thing is that we think is, is actually dark. We don't like that. Draw the curtains. So no, Jesus says, I'm not going yet. Not like that. The world is going to reject me, and my time has not yet come to be rejected. 
I'm not going to go like you would or in a way that you want me to. My hour has not yet come. You're free to go to Jerusalem whenever you want, but I'm not going with you. But then keep reading. Verse 10, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Now, it's not that he lied to his brothers. I read several commentaries this week throughout the centuries that uh, commentators say that Jesus lied. He straight up lied to his brothers. He's really fickle. As soon as they left, like they, he missed them and they just wanted to be with his boys again, right? That's not what's going on. What's going on is that he didn't want to go like they wanted him to. He wasn't going to go with a huge following and with big religious fanfare. Because think about it. In ancient times, it's actually really difficult to be a celebrity, right? Like, how do, how do you know... Think about a celebrity that we all know. Like, I don't know, somebody's in the news a lot right now. Prince Harry, right? Everybody knows who Prince Harry is. How does everybody know who Prince Harry is? Have you met him? You have never met him. First of all, someone has to be there to take a picture of Prince Harry with their phone or their awesome camera. And then the, the medium through which the, those pictures get distributed has to be existing as well. The internet, right? Or a magazine in the checkout aisle at the grocery store. None of these things exist in these days. So if Jesus just rolls on to, down to Jerusalem completely by himself, not with this huge crowd of people following him, then it's likely no one's going to know who he is. So this is why in verse 11, the Jews, the Jewish leadership, who are distinct from the Jewish crowds, they're looking for him. They're asking, where is he? Everybody's here right now. So surely he's got to be here. Where is he? Where, where, are the, where are the magic tricks this year? What's he going to do? And just like in chapter 6, the people are muttering or literally grumbling. Just like the people in the wilderness. Just like they were in chapter 6 and just like the people in the wilderness who now at the Feast of Tabernacles, these people are imitating or are remembering. The crowds are divided. They're muttering. They're grumbling. They're divided about who he is, whether he's a good dude or not. And not surprisingly, no one in the crowd is advocating for a third option, that he's actually God. It's just, is he a good prophet or is he leading the people astray? Is he good or is he bad? Not the third option of who he actually is. So unlike us, Jesus has come to be served, or not to be, not to be served, but to serve. Jesus has not come to live his life as a king, but to, through his death, become our king that we might have his life. And he knows that his hour is coming, but not yet. There's more for him to teach. There's more for him to do. So he doesn't act like us. And second, he doesn't teach like us. Beginning in 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, saying, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God and whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So about the middle of the feast, about three to four days into this week-long festival, Jesus walks up by himself, no crowds, no 
trumpets blaring or anything announcing that he's here to teach. And he just begins teaching. The Jews, like they later would with Peter and John in in Acts, they ask, how in the world is this guy teaching when he's never studied, when he's never studied under a a, a rabbi? Well, what they're meaning here is that every rabbi since Moses has come from like a family tree or a lineage of rabbis. So like Paul, he's identified later as having studied under Gamaliel. Every teacher, like Paul, every teacher in Judaism is the disciple of another teacher. Knowing who they have studied under not only gives them credibility, like, it's like, hey, did you go to seminary? Yeah, you go to seminary? All right, good. You've got some bit of credibility, right? But it's not just that. It's also that you can know a lot about the kind of teacher that that guy is by who he studied under. You can know the particular lineage, lineage of his training, and by knowing that, you could understand a particular way that he's going to teach and interpret the law. So who is this Jesus? Where did he go to seminary? Who did he learn under? This is a very important question. Because when then somebody answers, he didn't, he didn't go to seminary, he didn't learn under anybody, they're like, what? Like, there's just zero category for that, for a first century rabbi to be teaching, having not learned under someone else. But then in response, whether they were asking about him loudly, uh, so that Jesus, like, overheard what they were asking, or if he just knew their thoughts, right, Jesus just starts desert island James Madison, Madisoning them. Is that a verb? If you missed the first three minutes of the sermon, that made zero sense. But he knows that they're basically asking, hey, where'd you go to school? And he's like, uh, like the University of Heaven, right? The, the place and origin of all things, of all of these debates that you're having, all of them, I'm the place of their, I'm from the place of their origin. In verse 19, he says, look, you guys have the law, right? You labor really, really hard to keep it and to understand it, yeah, and yet none of you keep it. How do I know that none of you keep it? Because you're scheming right now in how to kill me. And you know that whole, like, thou shalt not murder stuff, right? And the crowd's like, wait, man, you're crazy. You must have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? There's nobody trying to kill you here. And they're asking this not knowing that that's exactly what the leaders have been planning and will continue to plan until they get their wish. But Jesus ignores the accusation of having a demon and he ignores their questions and he just keeps plowing. And he's going to show them that one, yes, they do break the law and that two, they don't understand it in the first place. And therefore, they don't share his same pure motives of being of God, of teaching for God, and of teaching what the law is for, namely to love God and love your neighbor. So he brings up what happened the last time he was in Jerusalem. The time that he healed that man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. Rather than praising God for what Jesus had done, the people, namely the leaders, had gotten real ticked off at Jesus that he had done what he had done on a Sabbath. But that didn't make any sense. In verse 22, Jesus is basically saying, you guys got mad for all the wrong reasons. Let me show you. Let me show you how I know that you have all the wrong reasons and motivations for your anger 
So he begins teaching about circumcision. You've heard it read now twice, and perhaps you still don't understand what in the world the point is that he's trying to make. He's basically saying that ever since God formalized circumcision as the external sign of the covenant people of God in the law, uh, Jewish boys, they'd be circumcised on the eighth day of their birth, after their birth, okay? So Jesus puts this hypothetical situation in front of them. What happens if a boy is born on a Friday and then eight days later, the day that he ought to be circumcised, this is a Sabbath, He needs to be circumcised, but the act of circumcision will be considered work. So which trumps which? Should we not work so that he's not circumcised, or should we we circumcise him and work? Jesus is saying, rightly, you understand that since circumcision came before Moses, came before the giving of the law, came before this whole formal... uh, thing of the law that this is what we do with our Jewish males. This came from Abraham way before him. This has precedence. It has precedence and we ought to do that. And so if you understand that this ritual is something that makes your son partially healed on the Sabbath, many Jews thought of that ritual as like a healing. It made you fully, a full Jewish male where one member of his body is brought into wholeness as a Jewish male, then why in the world would you get upset when I healed the entirety of the male? If you're going to heal one member, one part of his body, what in the world are you upset at that I just made him completely whole? I reversed the entire curse of Genesis 3 in this man's body, and you got upset at that because it was the Sabbath? You guys don't understand at all. If you really understood what the law was, what it's for, it's a response to God by faith in obedience so that you can love him and love your neighbor, then you ought ought to see that not only am I not a Sabbath breaker, but that I am the very fulfillment of the entirety of the law and of circumcision itself. That as a perfect law keeper, the entirety of the law gets absorbed, gets swallowed up in Christ. And this is, now he has come to give not just an external marker on just boys, on male bodies, but he has come to give an internal marker on all of God's people, male and female. Not the fruit of faith by a knife in the hand of a priest, but the fruit of faith by the Holy Spirit in the very hand of God. Instead, though, Jesus says at the end of verse 23, healing this man on the Sabbath, it made you angry. You don't have any idea what the law is for. In fact, you're thinking that it is merely about external purity. Following the letter of the law to be clean, it's actually making it worse. As Paul will argue in Romans 2, where he says that you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. All of this is making Jesus angry And they aren't judging, verse 25, by who Jesus actually is showing himself to be, but rather only by what they choose to see him doing. Their trust is in the law rather than the God who forgives lawbreakers and justifies them. And so it condemns them. So just like at the end of chapter 5, they think Moses is on their side. 
And Jesus pulls back the curtain to show that Moses is actually standing there accusing them. saying, you are not with the law and you are not with God. But again, as we've said multiple times throughout this book, this book, this teaching, and John is certainly not anti-Semitic. For one, because John's a Jew and so is Jesus, right? But also, in understanding that the Jews in these chapters are stand-in representatives for the world, They are proxies for every human being who has stood before God and claimed uh, that they are made right before God by their own doing, by their own work. So you and I should read chapter 7 and see our own faces in the reflection. How we exhaust ourselves to keep up the appearance that everything is just wonderful in our lives. How we work, work, work to check all the right boxes and avoid all of the Um, bad behaviors that we could get into so that God will accept us, so that we'll be made right before him. We're too proud to admit struggle, too proud to admit failure to one another or even to God. How we curate our social media feeds daily so that everyone believes that my life is full of happiness and wonder and contentment, adventure. When in reality... It's just a mask that's masking our boredom, our mundanity, and our even despair. This is pride, pride, pride in my own heart. And the darkness of the human heart is so twisted that pride can even be in our sharing of our own weakness. John Piper says that self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Self-pity sounds like self-sacrificing. The reason self-pity does not look like pride is that it appears to be needy, but the need arises from a wounded ego, and the desire of the self-pitying is not really for others to see them as helpless, but as heroes. The need self-pity feels does not come from a sense of unworthiness, but from a sense of unrecognized worthiness. It is the response of an unapplauded people. Oh. Even in our sharing of our weakness, I think Piper is right that oftentimes this is still just pride, the exaltation of ourselves. So badly do I want to make it on my own apart from the kindness of the Lord. So badly do I look for all of the rules to keep and all of the ways to appear righteous. So badly do I want the praise and the applause of men. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver deliver me from this body of death. But thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord, through whom now there is no condemnation for those who are in him. Amazing. We are accepted by God, not because we are righteous, but because he is. As we confessed together from Galatians this evening, as we heard from Ephesians 2 of that we are saved by grace, and then as we sang right after that, that we are adopted sons of, and daughters of God. All of this is because of what John 1 tells us. That we become children of God for those, uh, for when we believe in him. Who, we, who receive, him, receive him and accept him through his name. Jesus does not act like us. He seeks to serve rather than be served. To only become famous when God is becoming famous people worshiping God with true hearts through him. He doesn't act like us and he doesn't teach like us. His authority comes from heaven itself, from a deep understanding and love of the law because he wrote it. 
He teaches and preaches not out of a self-seeking motive, but right to our hearts because he loves us. So he doesn't act like us. He doesn't teach like us. Because third, he is not like us. Verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him? Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So John starts giving us what is almost like the inner monologue of the crowd. Like, likely some of these people who were there in the crowd would not only become Christians, uh, but they would become probably some of John's best friends, his brothers and sisters in Christ. Perhaps later they would tell John exactly what everyone was thinking and talking about that day that Jesus was teaching outside the temple. But for the moment, they're confused. Jesus is preaching and teaching with authority. He's confronting the leadership in a way that no one does. But the leadership isn't doing anything to stop him. And so they ask in verse 26, maybe the leaders have come to believe that he's the Christ. But then they answer their own question in verse 27. No, he can't be because tradition has it that while the Messiah would be a flesh and blood human, he's going to just appear. Like there's not going to be any of this questioning is like, is this guy the Christ? Is this guy the Christ? He seems like the Christ, but then, he, then again, he doesn't. The, the Messiah is just going to appear and be the Messiah. He will conquer all of Israel's enemies and he will, there will be no guessing. Or so they thought. So Jesus responds to that by saying, you know me, and you know where I come from, but basically, you don't want to believe it. Where did I go to school? Heaven. Where do I come from? Heaven. But you wouldn't even recognize what it looks like since you don't even know God. You don't know heaven at all. So how in the world would you know me? You keep trying to know God on your own terms rather than the way that he actually is. Even though God had given the people the law so that the nations might see them, observe them, and think, what a great God, and look at the joy of those people. They had instead created the law to be their God in order to judge themselves as superior to the nations. And in that sense, Israel was following in the long line of humanity before them and then after them. Even though God had fashioned humans in his own image ever since the first man, we humans have then turned around and created our own God in our own image to find the things that a given culture loves and then to make and worship a God that represents those loves. So cultures worship gods of power and of violence and of warfare or they worship gods of sexuality or virility or sensuality. They worship gods of masculinity or femininity. They worship gods of beauty and grandeur or cataclysm and destruction. So as it happens, while we don't have, very many of us, I think, metal or wooden gods or goddesses that we worship, nevertheless, we still worship these gods just as much as any old Egyptian or Canaanite or Greek or Roman. 
finding the thing that we love most and then worshiping it. God has created us to be worshipers. We are never not worshiping. We're always worshiping something. And this week, Ray Ortland, a pastor in Nashville, said this. He said, the false god that we're up against here in the South is bobblehead Jesus Jr., who never judges, never interferes, never demands, and can't save us because he is us. Sweet, precious, miniaturized Jesus must make way for the glorious Jesus of the gospel. And he is so right. While we don't live in Tennessee and our culture is a little bit different than his, the sweet bobblehead Jesus is still a false god. He doesn't have a golden or scary statue, and he isn't offensive to anyone. But he can't save us because he's just another one of the gods that we have made to look like us. He's winking and he's approving of everything that we do as long as it makes us happy, we think. Approving of everything that we are as a culture because he is our culture. Just with a beard and a white robe. So here's the confrontation of this text in chapter 7 as we move into what it means for Jesus to be living water. Maybe you've been kicking the tires on Christianity. Maybe you've been exploring the Bible. Maybe you've been thinking about this, talking with others about all of this that you've been hearing and reading. And if that's true, I'm, I'm, like, I am legitimately so glad to hear it. And we would love to be available to help you think through some of these things. We're not put off by your doubts or your questions, your hesitancies, but we, we welcome them. We want to talk through these things with you. But consider this. Maybe it's just time. Maybe it's time to stop, stop kicking the tires. And maybe it's time to just go all in. Maybe it's time to recognize that what is actually already true, but perhaps you've been unwilling to admit that though you have convinced yourself that you are the highest place of authority in your life, Jesus, your creator, he actually is. And that despite you wanting to be that ultimate authority in your life, it's actually not going very well. Maybe that it might feel like a death in your life to Stop letting your desires, stop letting your feelings be the ultimate compass for the direction of your life. While that might feel like death, the reality of the gospel is that the place of what might be feeling like death will actually be the place of your life. This is amazing. Jesus says that we must lose our life to find it. And he's offering you life. So maybe this is the night of life for you. We'd love to help you think through that. For those of you who have already found life in Christ, how often do we need to be reminded that Jesus is not a bobblehead? Every day, right? That he is really real. He is the resurrected king of heaven. And he is your God. How often do we need to be reminded of and confronted by the reality that Jesus is our creator and our living king? Every moment of every day we need to be reminded by this. He is altogether unlike us. Just as like what Ryan read this, 
from the, our call to worship in Isaiah 55, that his thoughts are not our thoughts, that his ways are not our ways. And that's a good thing. And for his glory and our own joy, his kingship needs to get down in all of the unlit places in our hearts, all of the nooks and crannies of our lives, that he wants all of us throughout the week and how we work and play, throughout the week and how we watch Netflix and spend our money and how we study for our tests and raise our children. He wants all of it, and he wants all of it in the light for our own joy. He wants all of us and how we commit to each other in membership and how we commit to being with one another weekly on Sundays and throughout the weeks in our gospel communities and in our dinner tables. But all of this is because of the life that he gives us through his coming cross. In verse 30 he says, or that John tells us that they were seeking to arrest him but no one had laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. The full time of his public trial and execution, the coming, uh, which would come after the, his full fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles, which would come after the coming Feast of Dedication, and then being presented one more time at one final Passover, now is our unblemished final Passover lamb. That's coming, but not yet. He will, ab- he will be able to give us his life because he first gives us his death. And it's coming, but not yet. So Christian, you are alive in Christ. So let's walk out of here this evening as former dead people who are now alive. This is amazing. Not just parts of our lives. Not like there are parts of me that want, I'd, I'd really rather keep dead. But he has not just come to save one part of us He has come to heal all of us, to make us alive in him, to make us full sons and daughters of God with the claims of full inheritance of our older brother Christ. So let's walk out of here. Those of us who are alive in Christ as men and women who are walking from our tombs to Christ until we die or until he returns. This is good news. Perhaps the night that tonight is the night of life for you. Perhaps tonight is one more stop on our walk towards glory. Let's keep walking. We are mobile people, just like Israel in the wilderness. We are mobile people. This is not our home, but we are walking towards our eternal home. Let's pray to that end. Our Father, we are just floored that we can call you Father. The God of the universe, inapproachable in light, inapproachable in holiness and righteousness, would not only allow us to be in his presence, but would allow us, his children, to come upon his lap. Unbelievable, amazing grace. And we're floored by it. Father, we pray that we might know it more deeply, that we might understand your grace even more fully, certainly in coming to know Jesus for who he is. Not a bobblehead, miniaturized Jesus Jr. that's just kind of present in our life on our dashboard as we drive around town, but really of no ultimate impact. 
Lord Jesus, would you make yourself huge in our lives? Would you, by your grace, come and shine light into all of our lives, into all of it? And Father, that you have called us out of the world, might we, your, your people, your children, might we welcome the light. Might we no longer want to stay in the darkness because we are no longer of the world that hates the light. Father, help us to love the light and help us love you. Father, we are thankful for all that you have done and that you are doing for your glory and for our own good and joy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com. Thank you.